Hello and welcome back to Smug and Play, the internet's smuggest mid-90s PC gaming podcast. This is a special episode, and because it's a special episode, we have a special guest. Me, hi, Connor. Again, uh, so not that special. It's, you know, same, same as last time. So. Top of the morning to you. Yeah, Faith and Begora. <laughs> Great. And you may have also heard the voice of my co-host over there. Hi, it's it's Alan. Uh, now that we've introduced ourselves, we wanted to revisit uh, a topic from last month's podcast. We were going through an article in PC Gamer detailing the inner workings of Looking Glass Studios, a highly influential developer of games such as System Shock, as well as Ultima Underworld. And specifically, we wanted to talk about the early career of Seamus Blackley, uh, because we failed to mention some of his later achievements that are in some ways foreshadowed, I think, by what's discussed in that article. We talked about Seamus Blackley and how he got fired from Looking Glass for making unprecedented profitable video games and right. uh you had happened to just mention coincidentally jurassic park trespasser as a game that was made for future hardware and i i cut this thinking okay this is a niche video game you know we'll get to it in 1998 and then later found that it was produced by seamus blackley yes <laughs> it just all came together beautifully yes in, in, in many ways it seems like the the er seamus blackley game i guess <laughs> it is Heavy emphasis on investment in the physics engine to the detriment of gameplay, story, playability, uh, the team's ability to actually complete the game. Many things. Yeah, many things. I was reminded of this, actually, because I saw in an Angry Video Game Nerd video on YouTube uh, in which he reviews Jurassic Park Trespasser, and Seamus Blackley makes a cameo appearance in that in which he traps the nerd on an island uh, designed to basically torture people who criticize the game by having them dress up as dinosaurs. <laughs> right. Anyway, it's kind of funny. It's worth watching. It's some more insight into uh, this man and his games. I remember playing the demo of this game, and it kind of blew my mind, but not in a gameplay way, just in a, oh, what an interesting experiment. You know, you've got a different sound effect when you hit it, the 2 by 4 against another piece of wood or a dinosaur's head. It's different for every material. I can't believe they spent the time doing this. <laughs> that was yeah. pretty much my impression at the time. Yeah, this game was really basically targeting what like the spec of like the half-life 2 or far cry engine you know in 1998 so i mean it it was ahead of its time just it ran at four frames per second which uh doesn't make anybody happy unfortunately yeah i mean playing it on the 500 megahertz celeron the sense was oh my god once computers are faster and this plays more fluidly we'll really be able to appreciate how realistic these physics are but then when faster computers came about the physics engine really showed how broken it was things like giant trees would bounce or would like collide with other objects and like send them flying and like all these really there was some sort of if you just took a a stone and threw it in the air the arc it described would be like you know real world physics but then if anything more complicated happened things would break down very quickly yeah i think even then actually it was it was a little bit like the gravity on an asteroid you know when stuff was you know falling freely in the air yeah it wasn't that realistic really (laughs) It's funny to watch the Angry Video Game Nerd video because you can see like if you just lured the dinosaur close enough to like the edge of a ravine or something, it would just slowly slide down the ravine forever looking up at you and and making, you know, like roaring or squawking sounds as it like inevitably descended the slope. 
I love Squandered Potential, and that that's a game that is indelible in my memories because of the squandered potential of it. Oh, yeah. Shall we move on to the topic of this special episode of Smug and Play? Are you prepared for Descent? The game we're talking about is 1995's Interplay and Parallax Software release, Descent, um, which is billed as a first-person shooter. I think that is a mischaracterization of the game. My justification for a special episode for just this game is that Descent is not just a great game that I enjoyed back in the day in 95 and in the many years that came after, but it's also, I think, a very historically significant game uh, in that it was a, a test bed for new ideas in virtual reality that are still being played with today. And a lot of the work with head track and, and things that we associate sort of with modern VR. Yeah, and, and, and motion sickness. And, and vomiting, and, uh, nausea. Yeah. That's right. Which, yeah, I got, an, I got a fair amount of that too. I played Descent. Uh, for some reason, I had the full version, I think because I thought the box was so cool and because it was true 3D and that's what made games good was being something new. Yeah, really neat understated box with the black and copper color scheme. The little orb, yeah. The orb, the burned in images of some of the the robots sort of on the front. Like there aren't too many games that go and just are like, listen, you're going to buy this game. It doesn't matter what the front cover looks like. It doesn't have to be like a guy standing on a pile of demons or anything like that. It sort of foresaw its timelessness in a way. How did you first encounter Descent? I think I had, like uh, many other people, somehow come across the demo. And when it came out on Mac, which was a bit, uh, almost a year later, right? Was, at least it was at the end of 95 or so. I think it was in December of 95 or so. I got it then and thought, yes, finally, I've got the top technology game ever. And I'm, I'm up there with everybody else. You know, it was sort of a purchase to test out what I could play on, on my PC parents' computer. So I did play the hell out of it. The Macintosh version of this game is actually very special. Like with Dark Forces, it runs as 645 480, which is, you know, quadruple the resolution of the DOS version. The Macintosh version, because it renders at that high resolution, required Power Macintosh. Remember that in 1995, Apple's still selling Quadros, and they're still considered to be fairly high-end machines. But you have to have a Power Macintosh to play this game. That is the base requirement. And the PC version wouldn't get 640 by 480 uh, resolution support until after, I think, like Descent 2 is released. And it still wouldn't play fluidly on any hardware of that period. So this is a real showcase, actually, for the power of the Power Macintosh, in addition to being kind of a special edition of the game. I do remember the big selling point of it being a sort of one-line concept, right? You fly into a mine and blow it up and then there's this timer going and it's going to blow up with you in it unless you yep. find your way out. Uh, you know, I still think actually it's one of the best kind of high concepts for the gameplay cycle of any game yeah. ever. It's really clear what your objectives are and they play with it 
in every subsequent level to make that more interesting. I know how I encountered this game, but Alan, I'm actually interested to hear your story because I don't know if it's the same as mine. Well, I thought it was uh, rich that you asked me because my recollection, Austin, you being the older brother, is that you hogged the uh, the <laughs> one pinium we had access to to play this game. Yes. You know, we covered on the Dark Forces episode that I had to compete for this pinium's time between, you know, my father, Austin, Merrick Online time. <laughs> Delphi. But I really mostly remember watching you play which was also good because i could look away occasionally so i didn't need the air sickness bag immediately yeah i definitely recall having the april issue of pc gamer magazine the one that's descent is plastered across the cover it says you know interplay's new doom killer i think is the language that they use to describe it i read through that article got really hyped for the game it had the shareware version on the disc and i popped that into my 386 and even with the lowest settings it was just a slideshow. And the reason is because I had a 386SX20, which was just the death knell for a game like Descent. Descent is really a high-spec game. But even clunking through on my 386 with all the detail settings set to nothing, I could tell that it was a special game. And whenever I had an opportunity when my dad wasn't there, sneak downstairs, install the shareware version of Descent on his Pentium 60, and go through and enjoy the game in the way it was meant to be played. And really loved the fact that I was exploring these complete 3D environments. I mean, we had gone from rooms over rooms being like this exotic impossibility with with Doom to being something that you could do in with limitations in Dark Forces to suddenly having almost what seemed to be arbitrary geometry, rooms over rooms, intertwining things, just these complex labyrinthine structures inside of asteroids and stuff like that was so captivating. And, and the graphics and I mean, the, the whole package, so we'll get into all of it but i was i was blown away from the beginning and it became just a lifelong obsession every computer that i've owned since has had a copy of descent installed on it and i go back to it 10 minutes or 15 minutes here or there you know every couple months or something like that i really love its gameplay loop i really love the the disorienting nature of it i think is a plus for me Shall we talk about how this game came to be? Yeah, so the two key figures here are Mike Kulas and Matt Toshlog. They met back in 86. They're working at Sublogic on flight simulators like Flight Simulator 2 and Jet. Yeah. Toshlog went on to Looking Glass. Our favorite developer. <laughs> Our favorite developer. While at Looking Glass, they came up with a vague concept for an indoor flight simulator using flat-shaded polygons. 
which had kind of evolved from all the Ultima Underworld and those like kind of, you know, cool 3D worlds uh, with texture mapped graphics. And by 93, they had a sketch for what we now know as Descent. Yeah. The mind crawling game. I, I looked into the, actually this one page design document that they put together. The developer document was titled XYZ Bots. And the story and the gameplay are pretty much there. They were originally targeting an IBM PC with 8286 or faster CPU and VGA graphics. Obviously, that didn't work out. But the story is described as mining colonies on the moons and planets of the solar system have been taken over by robots. The robots have taken the human workers hostage and are preparing for an assault on Earth. It's your job to fly into the colonies, rescue as many hostages as possible, locate control centers and destroy the colonies. So that like the overall plot and driving narrative for the game is there from day one in this design doc. Now, this is another interesting point going on to the gameplay. Since the robots are not intelligent and don't know you are coming to destroy them, at first you'll attract little hostility as you search for the control center, rescue hostages, and make limited use of tactical weapons. Over time, more and more robots will be aware of your presence and begin to attack. And so from the outset, having really challenging AI, at least in the early levels, was never a priority for them. And they would kind of get criticized for this later on. There's another section in this document toward the bottom called Why XYZ Bots is Special. And I think this is really interesting. Although there are many three-dimensional games on the market, most of them concentrate their world in one plane. This is particularly true of flight simulators since you're typically far above the scenery. It is also true of most land-based vehicle games, which rarely have much scenery above the player. Almost all the action in our game will take place inside the mining colonies, which will always have dense scenery and hostile threats on all sides of, including above and below the player. All of the hostile robots will have the same three-axis freedom of movement as the player. The player will truly feel surrounded by a hostile world. And A, this is, I think, a really interesting sort of critical take on the games that existed at the time, but it also gives you an idea combined with like what their background in games was about what they were trying to do here. There's a phrase that you will not find anywhere in the design document, and that phrase is doom killer. If anything, they're interested in making like a flight simulator killer or a driving game killer. There's no interest in like being part of that lineage that goes from catacombs to Wolfenstein to Doom. This is kind of adjacent to that lineage, but it's its own thing. And so when people made the obvious comparisons to Doom, it didn't always make a lot of sense. Yeah, the comparisons with, uh, I would say that the comparisons with Doom were kind of just because of the technology that that they ended up with uh, built Mm -hmm. into the game, um, rather than their intentions. And uh, I don't know if it was an official sort of marketing thing or if it was just uh, journalists having fun, but comparing it with Doom was going to be inevitable in a way because people played Doom for a long time because it was such a technological Mm -hmm. showcase. And Descent is another technological showcase, although with a completely different actual gameplay genre i have an idea of where the doom killer thing came from i think it's from their publishers neither apogee nor interplay were publishers of doom and they were probably very tired of seeing doom consistently top the sales charts while their games were nowhere near there and nobody wanted a doom killer more than interplay and apogee but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Kulis and Toshlog decided that rather than 
try to develop this game at Looking Glass, they would form their own studio. And so in June of 1993, they created Parallax Software and hired on additional programmers to bring this vision from the design document to light. And of course, they would need more money, more expertise and a publisher. So they reached out to none other than Scott Miller of Apogee Software. What was interesting is that after seven months of support, Apogee backed out of their own contract with Parallax so that they could focus on other games. Which is weird. Like, how did Boppin get released and somehow right. they <laughs> got rid of Descent? I know. They're looking through the list of projects that they have going and they're like, hmm, what should we cut here? Well, Boppin, we should definitely ship, you know, Wacky Wheels, whatever, you know. I don't know if they'd even started Duke Nukem 3D at this point. They're already saving up for Duke Nukem Forever. That's right. We need to dedicate all our resources to Duke Nukem Forever. Yeah, so Apogee backs out, and so jilted by them, Parallax spends three months putting together a prototype to try to solicit a new publisher, and they sent out a prototype called Inferno to 50 publishers and received only three responses, but one of those was a very enthusiastic one from Interplay, who immediately signed a new contract and then assigned uh, Rusty Butcher to be the producer and oversee the completion of the project. Under Apogee's influence, they had decided to use the shareware model. And when they went to Interplay, they kept that. And then Interplay pushed them in some other directions, namely to come up with a new title, which was Descent. That was Interplay's idea. And also to include some features that they thought had contributed to the success of Doom, namely multiplayer, through a variety of mechanisms, serial, modem, IPX, all the good stuff. Parallax had to go into mega crunch mode in order to get that, um, I think it's a seven level shareware version before Christmas of 94. And it would be distributed 900,000 times before the final release on March 17th of 1995. So a highly anticipated release. So that's like two and a half months uh, reaching that many people. I'd call that big hype. I, I can't imagine what the Especially parallels back would then. have been uh, at that time. It was distributed through the nascent internet. It was distributed via BBS and it was distributed in magazines and also in paid shareware CDs. Remember, this is back in the era where you would pay like 10 bucks to get the shareware version of a game. Remember like paying 10 bucks to get the shareware version of Quake? And then you had those CD-ROMs that had like, you know, 800 games on them and they were all just shareware versions from the past right. five years of, yes, of every, every game. single game. And Descent would be a common appearance on all of those. So yeah, it was kind of a, a turbulent development cycle given that they had that uh, change of publisher like mid-cycle. And their initial tech specs, if you think about it. Yeah, I love the original tech specs here because it says the colonies are going to have flat-shaded polygons right. and then all the objects would be just scaled sprites, which it makes me think to like a virtual racing or an Atari Jaguar game where like right. it's just these big, huge polygons that are like red, blue, green. <laughs> yeah, it started out as as just like flash shaded environments but when they worked on ultima underworld they saw what the power of texture map environments was and they immediately said well forget it it's going to be a texture map game descent had many advances and then it had true polygonal environments and enemies this game is recognized by the guinness book of world records as being the first fully 3d first person shooter what's really interesting technically here is the engine and it uses a technique that would later be used in a number of games called portal rendering in the case of descent this is the simplest possible way of doing portal rendering and that it uses cubes 
So if you use a descent level editor, you'll see that the base shape is a cube and you can connect cubes to each other in order to make tunnels and you can deform them in order to make more interesting spaces. And the advantage of this portal rendering engine, if you're doing a true 3D environment, is that the computer algorithms can very easily determine the visibility, draw order, and the clipping of polygons within zones because you know that you only have to draw things that are connected to the current cube that you're in. This technique is really smart in that it was able to get these results out of, you know, 1995 spec hardware. And the other like really important tech thing I want to talk about is how many net modes there were, how many multiplayer modes. Right out of the box, you have their version of Deathmatch, which is called Anarchy. You have Team Deathmatch, which is called Team Anarchy, like long before with Team Arena or anything like that. We have Anarchy with Robots, which is basically Deathmatch with bots. And then you have Cooperative Play. Yeah, I never played it that way, so, you know. Well, you're on Mac, so you had to find another person with a Power Macintosh. <laughs> In 1995. Yeah, in 1995, like, yeah, exactly. My mind was blown. I just feel like the level, making 30 levels for this game itself was an amazing yeah. accomplishment. And I don't know how yeah. they pulled it off that quickly and made all the 3D models. I mean, in uh, Dark Forces, there were just like a handful yeah. of 3D models. The money didn't go into varied assets um, and and into, you know, they went into sort of things that are going to inform your gameplay in a clever way and complicate matters. But it was very much, I would call it a sort of an earlier way to mm-hmm. get mileage out of a game where your levels are a way to basically complicate your right. gameplay proposal, but not necessarily show much new. What I would rave about in the architecture in Dark Forces about sort of starting to give you a rudimentary sense mm-hmm. of an actual place that's man-made, that has purposes, I would say they, no. they didn't stress about that. It's, I mean, this isn't really a critique because the game was doing so much new already, but it crosses my mind playing it 20-odd years later. Yes. These are mazes, and to be honest, there's not much about their designs that even say mine or anything else other than kind of uh, obstacle course intended to to challenge, yeah, your your sort of ability to face off these robots and get through them quickly and the major challenge is just getting the player to think in three dimensions to figure out how to traverse this labyrinthine 3D space. It's not something that we're used to doing, right? It's a very othering experience. Like the kind of spaces we live in are like doom spaces, right? They're like rooms. Occasionally you have like a staircase or something like that. Whereas Descent is sort of like, there are these caverns and there are these like, you know, weird looping sections. And it's so disorienting. Like, this is not the way that you usually traverse space. And like, that's the principal challenge of the game. And the levels are just there to give you new puzzles, basically, to elaborate on that gameplay proposition, as you put it. So you kind of alluded to the fact that there is a narrative. There's not much that the gameplay does to advance it or or to elaborate on it, but there is, in fact, a narrative. Can you give me epic voice, Alan? In a world, it's 2069. You've been recruited by the Post-Terran Minerals Corporation to blow up their mines that have been infected with a virus. The mines must be destroyed. 
uh, yeah, so it, it's not really a story-driven game, but they try to set up the premise. Basically, you just start meeting with your boss, who's this very corporate-speaking uh, suit and tie kind of guy telling you, you know. Oh, he's great. Uh, he, I mean, he looks yes. shadowy as all hell. Oh, um, yeah. He's made out of a sphere and eyebrows. He's not intended to be an individual. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's, you know, this very 90s sort of um, yes. uh, cynical voice of the main character. This is all happening in text in about yeah, 18... about 10,000 10, screens. I remember <laughs> as a kid, I just slammed um, <laughs> the escape key. I'm like, give me a break. Yeah, yeah. But very sort of uh, cynical yeah. about bureaucracy and this money-grubbing company only doing this to save their lucrative mining business. And then you think twice and go... Wait a second! You're being asked to destroy them completely. <laughs> He's—they're not that the greedy. Whole, the I mean, basic premise <laughs> yeah. actually doesn't make any sense. So the corporate hive mind who talks to you addresses you only as material defender, and obviously the point of this is to say that you're not a person; you're a function, right? It's dehumanizing, and this plays into its whole sort of post-apocalyptic cyberpunk backstory that every game from 1995 is required to have by law. I've mentioned this before <laughs> on the podcast, but like, if you're the material defender, then like, why the fuck are you blowing up their minds? Shouldn't you be like Jeff Goldblooming that? shit and like putting an antivirus like shouldn't you be flying into the mine you go to the main computer you install Norton antivirus and then you get out of there and the mine returns to function it does feel like they're just building it around like Lando flying out of the Death Star and the Millennium Falcon yes. though it is yeah exactly and then I say yahoo every time I do it just like I'm Lando <laughs> another note your character has apparently murdered loads of ah. striking miners before Perfect. which I think makes it the the first game where you um, play a Pinkerton beating Bioshock Infinite by a couple decades. But then you're asked to rescue the hostages. Yeah, true. Um, although you don't have to. So there's that. It actually, it's kind of fun to just fly by them and see them because they wave at you, you know, sort of despairingly. You just kind of cruise on by and just be like, I could, I could pick <laughs> yeah. you up. We, should we talk about the ending, Alan? You wanted to make mention of that. Well, spoilers, but it's like at the end, you get screwed by the company. They but... tell you you can't come back to Earth and you end up going. Well, but it's also just yeah. a huge sequel yeah. setup, obviously, um, that you need to go yeah. to the asteroid belt and you're going to do more stuff, of course. You would have known this was going to happen uh, if you thought as deeply about the story as <laughs> I did, because yeah. that briefing guy looked shadowy as all hell as i said he's he's bald can't be trusted <laughs> he's uh wears a right. suit can't be trusted single overhead light but i love that they played the horror movie music over it too and like the bells <laughs> I did want to talk about the gameplay. There's a, there's a question posed here. Alan, 
did you are you the one posing this question? I just want to see how different people play it. I I went for WASD where W and S are, you know, accelerate in reverse and you know, strafe. I think they called it slide, like slide <laughs> to the left, slide to the right, yeah. crisscross. The problem is there are, of course, right. three axes, right? So originally I used the mouse for kind of up and down tilt, but the sensitivity wasn't good and I didn't feel like getting my hex editor out. So eventually I just kind of did WASD with arrow keys. Yeah, and I, I went WASD with arrow keys. This game supports a blinding array of interface settings. You can do single joystick, you can do keyboard only, you can do keyboard and mouse, you can do dual joystick, you can uh, do head tracking, the options just go on and on. I also played keyboard. I played WASD and arrows, but I very stupidly decided that the clever way to play WASD in this game was for WNS to be slide <laughs> up and slide down. <laughs> and for me to put my thumb <laughs> under my fingers on the WASDs and hit X and C oh, wow. for forward and back. And mm-hmm. uh, my hands are like shriveled claws i can't use my pinkies or thumbs anymore you're lucky you have the nhs over there because you're going to be in for surgery next week <laughs> yeah it's it's you know i need these to work why did you do um, that to so yourself was, you know wasn't, wasn't the best idea to do this really i think you can't play on a keyboard to a full skill you level. at least want a joystick with a hat switch and you can use the hat switch for the slides i think that works rather well so we mentioned that this game has a kind of a, a simple gameplay idea. And that idea is that you are looking to find the power reactor or the giant boss that has been put in in place of the power reactor, blow it up and then escape through the exit, which is a different door than the entrance, but escape through that exit before the countdown timer reaches zero and the mine explodes. Everything else, like blowing up the drones, the drones, they block your progress. They they slow your progress through the mine. Austin, you mentioned that the AI is not very good. And the way they kind of make up for it is just kind of whenever you enter a room, there are, you know, bots on right. every side, yeah. you know, from the entrance. They overwhelm you as soon as you open the door, right. immediately barrage of lasers. Right. But you kind of... Over time, you like grow a skill of how do I whip back and kind of blow each one of these up in like a rotational pattern. And so you you eventually start feeling good about your ability to fly through. Yeah, it's an odd game to showcase fully 3D characters or enemies. Yeah, because everybody's generally facing you. They're firing or charging you and really hardly able to sneak much because all it really does is take the heat off you for a few seconds. I think we should note that part of the gameplay is also picking out places where you can find cover when you open that door and then the barrage of of weapons fire comes at you because most of the, the weapons in this game are fairly slow moving, right? You can see them coming. They have a certain trajectory. They're traversing 3D space as well. And you slide over and you see like the energy shots pass through the corridor beside you and you know it's passed and you jump back into the corridor and you fire and you jump back into cover. Like that's an interesting part of this as well is sort of figuring out, you know, what the trajectory of energy shots are going to be and where you can be safe. And as for the level design, you know, I feel like they really try to get in your head. I mean, all the levels are basically you progress Mm -hmm. from getting the blue key card to the yellow to the red and somewhere after the red, you find the power reactor. But they always 
like to put yeah. you know the red door first right. or something so you think like you've messed up and thinking in three dimensions is really hard like i i found i found myself lost all the time i never looked at the map so oh i looked at i looked at the auto map all the time oh, i didn't much yeah i mean it shows you where you've been and the geometry of that but also it shows you where you haven't been and what you've yet to explore and, and allows you to sort of make hypotheses about how these different spaces might connect to each other if you're looking for hidden areas and stuff like that i'm always an auto map the problem is that unlike in dark forces where like auto map just overlays when you tap the map key in this game it like freezes the game cuts to a completely different screen which you have to then play around with it shows the level in wireframe and if the level is especially dense like that wireframe just could be completely illegible and useless to you and you got to zoom in and out and rotate to try to figure out okay what am i even looking at here it's funny because I would be so much better at the game playing that way, but I just don't want to play it that way. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same. I I wanted to traverse really quickly and 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 then maybe once look at the auto map and go, oh, okay, I missed something there. So after I played this for a while, I went and I played the first episode of Doom again because I noticed some similarities. Like with John Romero's first episode, it very often presents to you like within the first like minute of exploration that like red key card door it sets a goal for you from the beginning like ah i am looking for the red key card i'm going to need to pass through one of these other ways in order to find that and then i'll return to this space that like kind of level design language that's in doom is very much here my guess is that it was their play of games like doom their contact with people at apogee and at interplay that kind of pushed the game in this direction because like none of these things are really accounted for in the design document but we have the progression of key cards we have shields that represent our essentially our health energy which is our laser ammo and and secret rooms that can be found but also like some weird carryover things like the score is a weird carryover and it means nothing like it's tallied up in the end and it sits up in the upper right corner of your screen but like score is otherwise just completely pointless in this game does anyone want to talk about all the weapons in this i'm a laser guy i just like highly powered lasers seem to work pretty well and then missiles for the reactor it's not uh, the most creative set of weapons but yeah. then i think if you if you if you did really weird gimmicky ones it would again it's like we're, we're progressing so far with what you're asking your right. players brains to do already that it probably would have been a bad idea to be super creative with it yeah i just kind of fell into the spread fire because you yes know, you don't have to worry about aiming yeah, at that spread, point it the, just makes like a cross uh that goes pretty far yeah out. the spread fire i think a lot of people yeah, that was just, me too yeah. just sit on that because it can be at distance it can be hard to line up your shots and the spread fire just kind of fills in the gaps for you it's very nice i like that the fusion cannon is like Mega Man's charge shot you can hold it down and, and like it'll charge and you can double its strength if you hold it too long you get like an overcharge and it starts to damage your ship yeah, there are an assortment of missiles. The mega missile is like the BFG of descent. The smart missile has a whole bunch of bomblets that create like basically total chaos and, and splash damage everywhere. Uh, but like, I didn't really feel like my progress in the game was gated on picking up particular weapons. Did anyone else really feel that? No, no. no. It it was more about shields than than weapons for me. The main the main thing in this game is you kind of start out and you just go slowly. You're kind of a completist. Like I need to blow up everything all the little drones and then you kind of go to like a run and gun right. 
right. thing. Like, I don't need to blow up everybody. I'm just going to, like, get my job done quickly. And then by level six, these drillers show up, which right. have, like, a Vulcan cannon gun, which is, like, right. instantaneous line of sight damage. So after that, you have to adjust to a fire from far away kind of bombardment gameplay. So let's just talk about over an overview of what some of the levels are. As we said, 27 main levels, three secret levels that are accessible through alternate exits, sort of like Super Mario World, I guess. But uh, you start out on the moon and it's very simple. Then things start to get a little bit more complicated. Alan, can you talk to him? how they spice things up in later levels? Spicing things up. Well, we talked about the drillers, um, but there are these also these guys, huge gray and later like red guys who fire missiles at you. They're really hard to avoid. Well, eventually they fire, uh, there's a type that fires homing missiles, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's just like these little guys that also just melee attack, clawing you in the face. And they... What tends to happen is you wind up at a spawn point in one of these and they just, <laughs> you know, regenerate right in front of you and it becomes a bit of a chore to get rid of all of them. Yeah, especially the ones that, that mob you, you know, they'll follow you. So you can't just back out of the room and hope they'll forget you. Yeah, that's the point where I start putting on the codes. There's that there's that point in every game. 90s games anyway, yeah. You got to get the Brady Games manual. <laughs> get the <laughs> dig up the Brady Games strategy. No, I <laughs> But yeah, I, and the other weird quirk about this game is because the shareware was seven levels, the seventh level boss is actually harder than like right. anything else in the game. So you kind yes. of like hit like the climax early in this game. Yeah, I'm not sure I needed 30 levels, really. I mean, seven felt good to me, but uh, I'm, I'm not as in love with it as, as you are. Austin. I think the seven level experience is great. And I think that they made the right decision of focusing on making that a really nice arc. For me, the, the full version game... I wasn't super invested in the story and wanted to find out, like, does the PTMC become solvent again after I cleanse its minds of the robot virus? What about its shareholders? <laughs> does it continue to make long-term shareholder value? No, like, that's not why you were buying the game. You bought the game because you loved what you saw there. You were interested in seeing how they might explore those concepts. And you wanted to be able to participate in the the online scene. And the- Yeah, I, I, I want to make a note also about... The- aesthetic decisions the environmental textures are maybe one of the main turnoffs that i remember having as a kid yeah exactly i i think this probably goes right against what you would say about it but aside from that we're in mines and to the extent that they look like anything they they look like mines and i sort of ended up with a kind of like a lonely feeling to it all and 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 the fact that you know, sometimes the dirt was brown and sometimes the <laughs> dirt was red <laughs> or, on the walls or, or sometimes, the, right. you know, 
things are metallic and sometimes things are a slightly different metallic. You know, it, to me, it was, it was like, I just wondered what else you could do with everything else they'd built, but done in an aesthetically more interesting way, just with the same technology even, you know. I actually was not in any way dissatisfied with the wall textures or anything like that. I, I thought they had a good balance between things that were realistically mine-like with dirt and rocks and some like highly saturated colorful stuff with lava, with like purple walls and interesting like... Yeah, the spawn points were cool. Yeah, I, I thought there was a good balance. It's not Quake, right? It's not brown on brown where you're like playing inside of a of an endless sewer where everything is just grainy poo brown all the way throughout it, it wasn't like that at the same time yeah it's not as saturated as maybe even doom was the saturated colors and the greater contrast and that helps you to kind of read the levels and it makes it easier to to play but I, I wasn't dissatisfied with it at all i thought that the textures were very nice yeah i mean the robot designs are a little, I mean, they're simplistic and their textures aren't really all that interesting, but they're so like iconic. The stupid red triangle eyes and things like that. Like I can't help but be nostalgic for Descent every time I see them. So maybe, maybe I'm letting it off easy, but. They, they do have some attitude that the, the robots in Descent, I mean, the, the lifters, the ones with blood smeared yeah. claws you know those are really characterful yeah. for considering how little animation they actually you know could could work into these um ships uh, there's a lot of palette swapping and stuff too so it's not they're not super original as as the game no, progresses no, no, but it's yeah. not. and some of the base enemies are pretty boring but like you know show me what other like texture mapped polygonal enemies from 1995 are more charismatic than these <laughs> like, yeah with like 15 polygons in the whole design yeah you know? i think they did a pretty good job I didn't know there would be so much dissent over the visuals of this game, but um, <laughs> how do people feel about the music? Yeah, okay. How do we feel about it in critical terms? <laughs> um, it, it was, uh, I, I was into it, yeah. I, I'm going to say that melodically, there is absolutely no attraction here. There are no great melodic ideas in any of the tracks in Descent. If you're looking for interesting melodies, something you're going to be like humming in the shower, like you're going the wrong way. You've gone to the wrong place, like play Doom or something like that. But the instrumentation is really interesting. They used everything available in the Casio keyboard slash like Yamaha FM sound bank, like every piece of percussion that could possibly exist, like from every world culture. We've, we've got like Cuban percussion and we've, we've got a regular drum kit and we've got African stuff and we've got bells and we've got claves and just like anything that might exist, they threw in there. And, and rhythmically, it's very interesting. So the music never gets in the way. And I found that, you know, at least the driving beat was sort of fun. But if you play it 
with general MIDI support on, and you have an interesting MIDI playback device like a Roland, or you have, uh, in my case, a Yamaha DSXG, then you really get the full sense. And the soundtrack is really unique and interesting. It's a bizarre combination of like mid 90s electronica, long pitch bends and other, you know, things that are obviously like referential of that area of techno, but with this like crazy, bizarre instrumentation. So I think that's really awesome and, and unique. For the critical ones here, I feel like it's good upbeat techno. I appreciate it. I think the beats are really good. I guess I feel like it doesn't have any particular character that I necessarily remember it. You know, like the id software games, they're going for a certain aesthetic. Like it fits well with the game. Ozzy Osbourne, yeah. Well, Nine Inch Nails and... Metal Vans via your Yamaha OPL synthesis. It's, I think it is a smart move to embrace MIDI and do electronica. And Yeah, I, I, I actually don't have complaints about the music. I, I just feel like it's a bit like middle of the road. Yeah. It's meant to appeal to everybody, and it does that well. It's good music, but I just want them to go for something edgier. You know, that's what I'm saying. I agree with what you guys are saying critically, that for a game that's really pushing the boundaries with, with with gameplay and with visuals, the soundtrack's really playing it safe. There's nothing of melodic interest. There's nothing. It's not like they're experimenting with like atonality or even something d- dynamic. You know, that's that sort of uh, ebbs and flows. Yeah, it doesn't even have the iMuse type you know stuff that you have in LucasArts games. How do you think this game was received, guys? Do you think think it was a, a success both commercially and critically? I'll take a guess. So critically, Breathless Awe. Yeah. Never seen anything like it. In terms of sales, you know, they gave away a lot with the shareware. Yeah. The best parts of the game. Very well distributed. Yes. To everybody. Yeah. And also, they kind of missed their timing. You know, the Christmas season was such a big factor in terms of sales. And releasing it in, you know, March, I think, passed up on probably a lot of potential sales as well. Yeah, as expected, the critical reception was really great. 96% Editor's Choice PC Gamer, 94% PC Zone. It's basically universal acclaim, the, the occasional niggle for nausea or lack of enemy AI and things like that. But generally speaking, then and in the years that came after, it was recognized as being a groundbreaking title. PC Gamer would, in 1995, for its second annual PC Gamer Awards, hand it Best Action Game and Best Multiplayer Game and Special Achievement and in Innovative Design. But I don't think that that critical success actually translated that well into commercial success. The The shareware version is probably one of the most distributed shareware games ever. It's probably just a notch behind Doom or somewhere like that. But in sales, it kind of peaked early. Like it, it never made it to the top. It debuted at the fifth and eighth positions in electronic entertainment sales charts in March of 95, climbed to fourth and third for the floppy and CD-ROM versions in April. And then it just kind of falls off and you don't see it again. In the, and the Macintosh version like charted in December 
November of that year when it came out, and then it fell off. You don't hear from it again. The only official sales number we actually have for this game that is released officially by Interplay was that by June of 1998, when they were going to release Descent 3, Descent 1 and 2 combined had sold 1.1 million copies. And that's a lot. I mean, that's really good for a PC game, but that's a long time and that's more than one game. And it's going to be way behind stuff like Doom. But I think that it was not the huge commercial success that Interplay wanted it to be. It was in no way a Doom killer in in that regard. And I and I think that that's partly because it was never intended to be. It was intended to be an indoor flight simulator, which is a really bizarre concept. It's experimental. It, it's 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 an experiment, this game. I mean, and it, it did uh, spawn some clones and sell decently, but I, I, think, I think there are two things to talk about here. Number one, the shareware being as widely distributed as it was told people what the game was, like to the point where you almost don't need to play the full one if you, if you're not, you know, 100% committed to, to the concept. And obviously that was a model that it, it cuts both ways. Doom right. did the same thing with however many levels they, they did and, and it translated into a lot of sales. But I think that a, a game like this that's kind of mm-hmm. weird and certainly was weird then, it's it's the kind of thing where playing the demo would tell people enough to decide not to buy it as well rather right. than, than tease this experience that they want to build a lot more on. So I, I think that there are a number of aspects to Descent's legacy. Obviously, it wasn't the game that unseated Doom as the game of choice for LAN parties and for online play in any way. So that whole aspirational Doom Killer thing that their publishers put out there and that was parroted by the press obviously never came to be. But I think from a historical perspective, Descent was really important because it served as this platform for hardware innovation in virtual reality and consumer 3D and helped to convey the potential of consumer 3D and virtual reality to the public. If you look at the 1.5 patch release, it supports a dizzying array of experimental 3D hardware. Everything from the gigantic Forte VFX1, like full stereo vision VR helmet with head tracking to the Victor Max Cybermax, which is a slightly less uh, bulky version of that same concept to virtual IO's eyeglasses which is an even less bulky version of, of stereoscopic 3D. And it supported all those natively. Uh, you can set them up in the setup program right next to your sound card. And it also supported less expensive uh, virtual reality hardware, such as stereographic simulis and the Kassan 3D Max, which are LCD shutter glasses. We had actually a pair of these. Alan, do you remember this? We had a pair of simulis. Yeah, and even with very young eyes, things did not work out well. Oh my God, just yeah. flicker and... Eye strain. LCD shutters, all they do is, you know, alternate between left and right, right. synced with the CRT display, which needs to be fast because you're cutting your refresh rate in half. Right. Exactly. It feels like this strobe world, but it's just painful. I've never seen a good version of shutter glasses so, working well. When I use the shutter glasses with this game, the effect, the depth of field, and the fact that like power ups and things pop out of your screen was amazing and revelatory. And two minutes in, I was puking all over the place because <laughs> you needed two things. You need to have a monitor that could do more than 80 hertz at 640 by 480, which most good CRT monitors can do that, but not all crappy CRT monitors can do that. And you also need to be able to drive the game at 80 FPS because you're rendering twice the frames. So you need a really fast computer. 
tied to a really fast monitor. So if you played it on like a one gigahertz Pentium or something like that later on in like 2000, 2001, you might get a decent experience from shutter glasses, but it was extremely nauseating at the time. But you know, this game has native support for head tracking and it's a perfect way to demonstrate the value of head tracking because you have those six degrees of freedom. If you have a virtual reality headset, you've got head tracking to point your ship in the right direction. And then you just have like a simple flight yoke in order to do forward and backward movement. You have like an incredible virtual reality experience in your home in 1995. And if you you put that side by side with what Nintendo was trying to do with consumer VR at this time, which is the Virtual Boy, it is a world of difference. One, One was a lot more like looking into a diorama box than being immersed in a world. And also, I wanted to briefly mention that in addition to virtual reality hardware, there were tons and tons of 3D accelerated versions of this that were used to demonstrate the power of hardware accelerators. The very first 3D accelerator that's going to be available to the public, the Creative 3D Blaster, had a port at some point, but was never released. Better known would be Descent Destination Saturn, which was a 15-level version of this game that was bundled with NVIDIA's first NV1 accelerator. But it's actually quite terrible. Uh, It runs slower than the software renderer in DOS because the card is just not particularly fast and the game's not well optimized for it. But Alan, you played a later community-created patch for this game. Yes, in 98. You know, I'm just assuming source code got distributed throughout the world. They did. They uh, they actually distributed the source. They opened it up. Yeah, only like a couple years or so after it was released. They released the source code with a non-commercial license. Wow. Well, somebody picked that up and wrote a glide integration for it. So Voodoo Graphics users like us, three years from <laughs> the yeah. current time we're talking yeah. about, could play the game. Uh, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I played it on actually emulated Voodoo Graphics on PCM, and I felt like it was like a you know modern 1998 game essentially. It's not far from the true 3D games that were coming out in those years to come. That's true. Playing Descent or Descent Two with that 3DFX patch at 800 by 600, it's like a slightly less gaudy version of Descent 3. If you were going to play this game and you have the ability to play with 3D effects like Voodoo Glide, then definitely check out this fan-made patch from 98. It makes the game so fluid and bilinear texture filtering is really nice compared to the nearest neighbor texture filtering that's used by the game in software rendering. The texture filtering looks really bad uh, at high resolution in software and it looks really nice when you use the, the Voodoo patch. So let's go and and talk a little bit about the legacy of this game. Part of it is obvious. This game had a number of sequels. I still have our original copy of Descent 2. 
Alan, what did what did you think of Descent 2? Well, I, it is an expansion pack, essentially, for Descent with more levels. It's got a larger color palette, but overall the graphics are pretty much similar. Obviously, some patches came out for 3D acceleration mm-hmm. that added, you know, some variability depending on your hardware. But, you know, it was released just a year after Descent 1, and it was kind of just more Descent for you. Yeah, I, I like that it had improved AI. I thought that the bots were more interesting, like the Thief bot. I mean, it's obviously an incremental improvement, but like GuideBot is a real gift from the gods for helping you navigate mm-hmm. its complex maps. Also, I think they did a much better job conveying the story. Everything that was in that like 500-page intro briefing in the original game, in Descent 2, they condensed the intro into this nice, well-rendered movie with some uh, sarcastic banter between you, the material defender, and whoever your like corporate tender is. And they get through all of that very quickly in a nice cinematic way. And it follows the like MechWarrior 2 intro cinematic arc where there's talking and then suddenly there's flame everywhere and then the logo like cuts through the flame and then, you know, scales into the foreground. Like, Almost every game did that after MechWarrior 2 did that. Descent 3 was the a second sequel to this game. And Descent 3 is a very different game, but one, first off, that featured hardware to the extreme. This was now 1999, and, you know, there was 8 million flavors of uh, graphics uh, that, that supported, yeah. pushing out, you know, the most advanced graphics you could have, the most advanced sound that you could have. This game is not as tunnely as Descent 1 and 2. There's indoor stuff, but yeah. there's also outdoor stuff. And obviously, it's just, you know, more open world feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, not having played it. It seems a little bit like something that you would want while playing Descent, and then once you had it in Descent 3, you might be like, oh, this actually kind of doesn't work yeah. together. You kind of just want one or the other. I'm, I'm interested if that actually opens out. Yeah, and- so I mean, 3D, 3D acceleration finally meant that you didn't need to do software tricks like the cube-based portal rendering that their first two games did that limited you to those sort of tunnel indoor spaces. Suddenly, you know, you could do anything with the level design, and unfortunately, from my perspective, that didn't do Descent a whole lot of good. They didn't really know what to do with that level of freedom. And so I found it to be less immersive overall. Now, when I initially played it, it's an incredible uh, showcase of the power of like the Voodoo 3. And it has incredible lighting effects. The visual flair was so breathtaking at the time that I was taken by it at the moment, but I don't ever go back to Descent 3. I never feel like I want to revisit it in the way that I frequently feel like I want to revisit the first two entries in the series. Well, it didn't kill Doom and become the, the new standard for 3D gaming, but did spawn a subgenre. Yeah, I mean, Descent likes do exist, and we'll, we'll talk about what's out there for gamers toward the end. I also want to talk about the fact that even though it didn't unseat Doom, it did generate a a big level in modding community, if you go to the Descent Mission database, you'll just Google for it because it doesn't have its own domain. If you go to the Descent Mission database, it's a one-stop shop for all your single-player Capture the Flag and Anarchy maps. It has 1,349 missions posted right now. I'm not the only crazy person who thinks that these games are still fun to play. And for multiplayer, there's still a pretty strong community. So... 
I guess that kind of takes us to the remakes and homages and the many descent likes that this game sort of inspired. You know, even though it's billed as a first person shooter, like I said, I think that's a mischaracterization of what the game is. And certainly it doesn't have a huge effect on like the overall sort of arc of first person shooters. It remained sort of influential in its own subgenre. And as, as I said, a way to experiment with ideas about what virtual reality could be. There are tons and tons of remakes of this game. There's DXX Rebirth, which is still in active development. The last release was on September 17th, which allows you to play uh, an upscaled version of this on Linux and Windows 10. There's D2XXL, which allows you to play Descent 2 in Oculus, which kind of allows you to sort of experiment with that platform uh, in a familiar game. Interplay used the engine for Descent in a completely unrelated game that still has the name Descent in it called Descent to Undermountain, which is actually like a dungeon crawler RPG. Oh, that's wild. The shiny game Forsaken is largely seen actually as an homage or continuation of Descent-like games. And in addition to that, there's a formal reboot called Descent Underground, which is now just called Descent, as well as a Kickstarter game called Overload from Matt and Mike, the game's original developers. One of those was actually released and you can actually play and is pretty cool. And that's Overload, the one that only was partially funded on Kickstarter. But the other one, the one that's the formal reboot called Descent, was Kickstarter in 2015 and still has not come out yet. And it seems like there's a lot of drama between a developer and publisher that may prevent it from ever being released. But if it does come out, it will support Oculus and will be yet another interesting take on the genre. So speaking of it as a genre, why was it an evolutionary dead end? And with what to all eyes at this point had to appear to be a pretty quantum leap in gameplay as as big as the leap that the first 3D first person shooters made only a few years previously. So why? And and I don't think these are the yeah. only reasons, but you know, I think controls are a barrier to entry and probably the human brain <laughs> is a barrier to entry in sixth degree of freedom games. I mean, it's <laughs> it is a really novel form of disorientation. I think that's a really good box quote for Descent, a novel form of disorientation that doesn't give you the 90s power fantasy that you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing is a lack of memorable, for lack of a better word, character, yeah. like not necessarily characters, plural, but, you know, a sort of a visual identity. Right. Yeah. I mean, even Doom was kind of like, check out all this hell stuff, you know, this yeah. is, is going to freak your parents out, <laughs> or, or Wolfenstein 3D with Nazis or Dark Forces with uh, Star Wars. Its character was limited to basically those 10 pages of text. Obviously, you've got more straight up space simulators yeah. that follow that are, you know, what, free space and that kind of thing that were significant but compared to fps it's it's a subgenre and my only real explanation is that we as humans live on floors and those are the spaces that we're used to manipulating i do think genuinely it does trigger or build spatial stuff in your brain that you don't normally do and that that is uncomfortable yeah and i think it's not a game to relax to you know i had a lot of friends who would the way they relaxed is that they would put on their favorite death metal album and then play wolfenstein 3d with a volume off and just go around and shoot things but i think that one of the reasons why we don't see more things like this is that descent is inherently a mashup it's kind of a mashup between first person shooters like doom and and flight simulators and space flight simulators and so you know its appeal is a venn diagram between all of those things 
And there are bigger markets to be had in the pure sort of Doom-like first-person shooter you know, vein. There is a smaller number of people who actually want to do something that's simultaneously all of those things. I would ask, is it a dead end or a fertile field? Ooh. Like, you know, with all the 3D VR technology coming out, I could see some resurgence in six uh, degree of freedom first-person shooter just because you'll be able to experience it in a reasonable way, use head tracking to actually move in an accurate way as opposed to the clunky keyboard controls. Well, yeah, considering that moving through a traditional FPS kind of space in you know in the current crop of VR yeah. is a mess of compromises. Yeah, it's a, that's a possibility. It, yeah. I think your question is a good one, Alan. Is it a dead end or a fertile field? And I think that we don't know at this point which of those is the case. I'm open to some developer blowing my mind. Although it'll have to compete with like drone racing and they'll be training people for drone combat, you know? It's kind of the same concept. Yeah, actually drone racing, it, it, it is kind of like drone That's racing, isn't it? Well, does anyone have any parting words on dissent? It would be interesting if the if you know the subject matter wasn't mines, you know, just like nobody's excited about mining. <laughs> Maybe things would be totally different. That's right. It's like, hooray, I'm going in a mine. <laughs> it's like I could render any world on this thing and it's I've chosen mines. Where can we transport players with the latest in virtual reality <laughs> technology? I know, a confined underground space that's dimly lit. That would be a good place to go. <laughs> that might be the whole problem but it was conceived of that from the beginning the design doc was specifically you are in a mine uh, i think they must have known when they were writing that that this wasn't an absolute mass market blockbuster yeah i i think that i think that makes sense but certainly their publishers had a different idea and tried to spin it as the doom killer as uh, a fixture of land parties yeah. as the timeless game with the huge community that will spawn endless sequels and it, i mean it got close to that but maybe it didn't quite have the legacy that they had hoped for maybe apogee knew something yeah maybe they were more prescient than you give them credit for As you know, you can hate us on on Instagram as uh, at Smug in Play. You can also hate us on Twitter. Uh, you can not subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts or Google Playlists. <laughs> if you accidentally do hit the subscribe button on either Google Podcasts or uh, Apple Podcasts, make sure not to leave a review. Uh, what are some other things? You can ignore our website, which is SmugInPlay.com or SmugAndPlay.com, whichever you choose, uh, where I may or may not be writing about old VGA cards that I used to play games from 1995. If you are interested in playing Descent and you don't want to give good old games any money because you don't like supporting a perfectly reasonable software distribution platform, then you can go on archive.org, uh, find the July 2000 PC Gamer disc entitled Classic Games Collection and get the whole thing from there. What are some other helpful things we can tell people not to do? Don't defragment your hard drive. Don't defragment your hard drive to music uh, on YouTube, <laughs> even though that's a thing now. And the less you, you interact with this podcast, the more or less likely I am to return, depending on whether you like me or not.
<laughs> so if you don't like him, make sure not to write anything in our comments. No, no, do, do, and say that you hate me, and maybe it'll make a difference, but definitely engage either way, as long as it's negative. Next month, we'll be back with uh, a normal Smug and Play episode covering the April 1995 PC Gamer disc and magazine, but not so much the magazine because I don't own it and I couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. I mean, you guys weren't immediately supportive of doing a special episode about it. True, true. I mean, I think it was significant enough to deserve one, absolutely. Uh, technically and <laughs> technically and also technically, but there's a, <laughs> yeah. 